Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 73 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes, where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter, and a reminder that all the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Our sponsors for this episode are the fine folks over at Guadalupe Roastery with absolutely excellent coffee, a fantastic mission. These guys are the real deal. Head on over to GuadalupeRoastery.com and be sure to use the promo code POPE, P-O-P-E, at checkout for 10% off when you scope out a few pounds for yourself and a friend. So it's once again, that's GuadalupeRoastery.com and the word POPE at checkout. Thanks again to Guadalupe Roastery for sponsoring this episode. Well, everyone, we are back. After a couple months hiatus, thank you everybody for sticking with us for your patience. Uh, Our Pope this week was far more renowned for his life before the papacy than he was after. And that was a bummer because he kind of gets a bad rap for it. But it certainly didn't help that he avoided accepting his election like the plague. This week on the Popecast, it's the Pope who really, really didn't want the job. Number 158, Blessed Pope Victor III. In 1026 AD, one of the last remaining Lombard noble families in Italy gave birth to their only son, Dofarius, in Benevento, southern Italy. Despite being destined for secular riches and taking on the family business, the boy knew of another claim on his life, that of a monk, and he had expressed his desire from a young age, much to the chagrin and opposition of his parents, and as a result had been rejected at every turn. His marriage had had even been arranged for him already, but life took a tragic turn when Dofarius was barely 20 years old. His father died in battle during the Norman invasion of southern Italy in 1047, and in the uproar, the young man took the opportunity to flee his family life for the life of a monastic. Apparently, he either didn't make it far or wasn't very good at hiding because he was found and brought back by force before long. However, he again fled, this time due south to Cava, a city on the coast near Salerno, and as a result, whether willingly or kicking and screaming, he convinced his family to allow him entrance into the monastery of St. Sophia, back in his hometown. It was here that he was given the name of Desiderius, which he would go by until his election as Pope decades later. The new monk soon found, however, that the rule of life at St. Sophia wasn't strict enough for him, and so he ventured first to an island monastery in the Adriatic Sea, and then to a hermitage in the mountains east of Rome, in the region of Abruzzi, in 1053. As a quick aside, it will help to set the scene a bit in terms of the cultural and societal situation within the church and the world as this pope was coming of age. Most every monastery by this stage of the 11th century was part of what's now known as the Cluniac Reform of Catholic monasticism. About 140 years earlier, a new type of Benedictine abbey was founded at the French town of Cluny, and given that the abbot there was accountable only to the Pope himself via a special privilege instead of to the local rulers or the local bishop, he had been the starting point of a massive overhaul and reform of both monastic life and the church as a whole. In the ensuing decades, the monks trained at Cluny would venture out to open their own monasteries, reaching their peak at over 1,200 by the turn of the 12th century and truly changing the face of the church and, by extension, Western civilization. Now, for those unaware, 1,100 years ago was a time eerily similar to the one we're in now, at least for the church. Catholicism had been riding high after rebuilding civilization following the fall of Rome centuries earlier, but lately it had fallen prey to a ton of abuses among the clergy, especially. In particular, simony, or the selling of church offices to the highest bidder, and gross immorality on the part of the clergy, in both senses of the word gross, 
particularly when it came to disregarding their commitment to celibacy, be it with women or with men, not to mention a general lowering of devotion and religious practice across the entire church. Now, these abuses went clear to the top, too. In 964, for example, Pope John XII is thought to have died at the hands of an angry husband for, you guessed it, getting caught in bed with the guy's wife. See Popecast number 33 for the full story there. At any rate, it's highly likely that the monastery Desiderius ended up in was one in the Cluniac line, and at any rate, we know that he was deeply inspired by the movement later in his life as well, given his closeness and collaboration with St. Hugh of Cluny, one of the most prominent of Cluny's abbots in the 11th century. But back to the story. The 1050s were a good decade for Desiderius, considering he first caught the eye of Pope St. Leo IX, who hired him to help broker peace with the Normans after the former had soundly whipped the Pope's armies in the 1053 Battle of Civitate. That wouldn't be the last time Desiderius had to come to a pope's aid in the political realm either. Now, following Leo's untimely death in 1054, the next pope, Desiderius's future namesake, Victor II, was his next stop. The monk had joined the papal court in Florence and happened upon two monks from the great abbey of Monte Cassino. The pair apparently made so great an impression on the now 29-year-old Desiderius that he had opted to join their community in 1055. And it happens that he returned the favor upon arrival in the area of making impressions, because not even three years later, he was elected abbot of the storied monastery and installed on Easter Sunday, 1058. Thus began a reign that saw Desiderius become, as the Catholic Encyclopedia notes, quote, the greatest of all the abbots of Monte Cassino, with the exception of the founder, end quote, and earned himself what German historian Ferdinand Gregorovius called, quote unquote, imperishable fame. His reign was marked not only with great spiritual renewal in terms of monastic discipline, the abbey grew to contain upwards of 200 monks while he served as abbot, but also with a full flourishing of artistic and architectural adornments as well. In addition to rebuilding various edifices and living quarters in need of a facelift, he had an ornate new basilica constructed that was consecrated by Pope Alexander II in 1071, and he used many of the abbey's donations, in addition to feeding the poor, obviously, to beautify the abbey church further. But perhaps his crown jewel, on the basilica at least, were having special bronze and silver doors made and sent to Monte Cassino from Constantinople, which, at least in part, believe it or not, still exist to this day. They actually even survived the Allied bombing of Monte Cassino during World War II. And as if that weren't enough, we have Desiderius also to thank for as many as 70 classic books that were copied and preserved under his watch. Works of great saints like Augustine, Ambrose, Bede, and Jerome, popes like Felix and Leo the Great, as well as various historical Jewish and pagan works like those of Josephus, Virgil, Seneca, and Cicero. All of this was done, mind you, amidst a busy diplomatic and curial workload. Within a year of his arrival at Monte Cassino, he was named a cardinal, and over the course of the next 15 years was granted ever greater powers as an ambassador of the pope, being able to reform monasteries and to appoint bishops or abbots in seats that were vacant, but also to continue to intercede on behalf of the Holy Father in political deliberations. As it turned out, the papacy of St. Gregory VII, our Pope's immediate predecessor and one of the greatest popes in the history of the Church, would be an especially stressful one for Desiderius. He was enlisted first thing in 1073 after Gregory was elected to, as the Catholic Encyclopedia states, quote, give an account of the state of Norman Italy, and entrusted him with the negotiation of an interview with Robert Guiscard, end quote. Robert, by the way, was one of the two Norman conquerors of southern Italy who Desiderius had already helped to become papal allies in 1059. The abbot apparently stayed on good speaking terms with, from then on with both Robert and Richard of Capua, the other Norman prince, even when neither of them at times liked Gregory very much. 
It was a good thing, too, because in 1080, and again in 1084, Gregory needed Norman troops to bail the Pope out of a jam. Toward the end of Gregory VII's life, as Desiderius' own election was drawing near, the abbot found himself for a time on the Pope's you-know-what list, though it was more out of a difference of style and disagreement in tactics than anything personal. Gregory was well known for wearing his heart on his sleeve, while Desiderius, though certainly no pushover, had much more of a moderate temperament. At any rate, the two were more than reconciled by the time Gregory VII lay dying in exile at Salerno in May of 1085, with a dying pontiff even going so far as to name Desiderius among the best candidates to succeed him. Thing was, Desiderius had precisely zero interest in being pope. If there was something less than zero interest, that was him. But as it always seemed to go with these things, at least in the best of cases, the man who least wants the job is the one who ends up getting it, or at least should end up getting it, right? After Gregory VII went to his eternal reward and the Romans expelled Emperor Henry IV's puppet of an antipope from the city, at least temporarily, Desiderius set about the business of helping organize the next papal election, and, selfishly, to see if the bastards were going to try to put him in the chair. His words, probably. Anyways, when he learned that he was indeed their man, Desiderius just ran. I mean, at least there was precedent with the Pope-elect making himself scarce, but he broke the mold, here, it would seem. Desiderius fled back to Monte Cassino and basically pretended like nothing happened, planning instead to get the Normans and Lombards to help fight off the emperor in Rome, and hoping that everyone would forget who he was in the process. He somehow was persuaded to march with the Normans back to the Eternal City in the fall of 1085, but found out the cards and the princes were planning a papal surprise party of sorts, wanting to force the tiara on him when he got to town. And so came a standstill. Desiderius made them pinky swear to abandon their plans before he entered the city, but they refused, and so the election was postponed again. The following spring, spring of 1086, around Easter time, the Red Hats tried again, summoning Desiderius and the cardinals at Monte Cassino with him to come back to Rome to chat about a new election. Desiderius begrudgingly agreed, and everyone got together on May 23rd, 1086. They all pressed him to accept again, and he again emphatically refused. They tried instead to elect Odo, the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia, and the future Blessed Pope Urban II, but to no avail. By this point, as the Catholic Encyclopedia brilliantly recounts, quote, The assembly now lost all patience. Desiderius was seized and dragged to the Church of St. Lucy, where he was forcibly vested in the red cope and given the name of Victor, May 24, 1086. The church had been without a head for twelve months, all but a day, end quote. But even this didn't work as the newly named Pope-elect Victor III, after being driven from the city with the cardinals four days later, insisted on laying aside his new title and returned again to Monte Cassino, remaining there for another entire year. And finally, during Lent of 1087, Victor III was persuaded at a council at Capua to yield to the cardinals' demands. He would celebrate Easter Mass at Monte Cassino and then made for Rome, but he again wouldn't end up staying long. Victor III was in Rome long enough to be consecrated a bishop, given that cardinal priests were still just priests in those days after all, and enthroned in St. Peter's Basilica before taking off again for the Great Abbey. A couple of weeks later would mark his last trip to Rome as Pope. He returned at the end of May, but barely a month later was driven one last time from the city, thanks to the anti-Pope Clement III, Henry's patsy, taking over St. Peter's once again. Victor III presided over a small council in August back in his hometown of Benevento in order to renew the anti-pope's excommunication, to drop a few other heretics, and to condemn lay investiture, right, the practice of princes thinking they got to name their own bishops. But just three days into the proceedings, Victor fell critically ill. 
and had to be carried back to Monte Cassino one last time. He lasted little more than a month after that, dying on September 16th, 1087. Now, it can rightly be observed in some sense, at least at first, that Abbot Desiderius bears little resemblance in terms of zeal and impressiveness compared to Pope Victor III, but it should be noted well that in all likelihood, it was solely Victor's ill health that caused him to so adamantly refuse the papal crown. On that note, the historian Ordericus Vitalis, who wrote just decades after the Pope's death, notes that he was so sick that, quote, he hardly got through a single mass, end quote, from the very start of his papacy. Knowing the stakes of the world at the time and the demands such an office puts upon the shoulders of any successor of St. Peter, who can blame Victor for attempting to let a more worthy man take his place, at least a more worthy man in his eyes? At any rate, there is one item of significance that Victor III did during his papacy. Everyone knows what came after, but almost no one knows that he all but started it. Here's the Catholic Encyclopedia one last time. Quote, On August 5th, 1087, when Victor was holding the council at Benevento, an army consisting of Roman, Genoese, Pisan, and Amalfitan troops sent by him to Africa under the banner of St. Peter captured the town of El Mahadia and forced the Muslim ruler of Tunis to promise tribute to the Holy See and to free all Christian slaves. This event may perhaps be considered as the beginning of the Crusades. End quote. A precursor, of course, if nothing else. But who, boy, Victor III may well be a lost pope amidst greats like Gregory VII and Urban II, but his abbacy clearly left an immortal mark on Christendom and he ended up being venerated by pilgrims for it not long after his death. His feast day was established by Pope Benedict XIII in 1727, specifically for use at Monte Cassino itself, and he was beatified by Pope Leo XIII in 1887. The Catholic Church now celebrates his feast day each year on September 16th. Victor III's remains have always been entombed in Monte Cassino since his death, the place he called home for so many decades with the only exception being during and immediately following World War II, when his relics were translated to Rome for safekeeping. He was moved back to the Great Abbey, however, after it was rebuilt in 1963 and remain there to this day. Well, that's all for this story of the Pope who really, really didn't want the job. We really hope you enjoyed it, especially if you're a new listener. We may have a handful more of the latter of those than normal this time around, considering that actually as we speak, all the folks who helped us on Instagram to get away from the uh, dreaded exactly 6,666 followers. So uh, thanks to all you um, new followers of the podcast, new listeners of the podcast. But at any rate, on that note, if you do enjoy the podcast uh, and you haven't done so before, we'd, we'd be honored if you share it with a friend or family member. Uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, um, so on and so forth. It obviously helps to spread the word about the show, but Lord knows more people than ever could use a little bit of historical perspective these days, right? Also, a thank you again to all of our patrons, particularly Mark, our newest patron. Without you guys, we could do none of this. If you'd like to support the Popecast as well, um, helping to cover our production costs and also getting some great Popecast swag in the process, be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash the Popecast. You can also find that link in the bio for this show. So as we head out today, let us ask for the prayers of Blessed Victor III. And remember, these are strange times we live in, but no stranger than an age's past. Until next time.